0: Good morning. Am I on (laughs) praise the Lord for the beautiful sunshiny day? Please stand up and join us as we sing our praises to him. we
1: It's a great day to come together and worship, and I'm glad that you're here. Let me just highlight a few things happening in the life of the church Wednesday night, all of our ministries for children, youth, and adults are on regular schedule. And next Sunday morning, we gather for worship again at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11. Uh, if you're going to be here Palm Sunday and Easter, April 1st, April 8th, uh, if you would have an interest in helping out with the children's church that day, uh, it's a great opportunity to, uh, to minister to, to our children Help them uh, learn about Christ. So if you're going to be around, your help would be greatly appreciated. You can contact Pastor Cindy or just contact the church office and we'll get you connected for that. Uh, Also, I'm offering another membership class coming up in the next couple of weeks. So if you didn't get in on the one a couple of weeks ago and you would like to come to a membership class, we'd love to have you. Just let me know and uh, we will arrange uh, to let you know of the date and the time for that. Uh, on April 6th, this Good Friday, we are hosting a uh, Journey to the Cross uh, prayer event. And this will be something that takes place in the community room, the gym. Um, we'll have 10 destinations set up there, some interactive, some just simply uh, reflective. But a, a chance to just in, encounter the, uh, the reality of the cross and what Christ has done for us. So we'll give you more information about that in the coming weeks. And uh, again, if you're going to be here on Easter and you would like to be baptized, uh, we'll be baptizing people at the 745 service. If you're interested in doing that, let me know, and we will be getting a class together in preparation for that. Uh, For those of you who are college students, there's an insert in the bulletin about a dinner that's uh, coming up actually next Sunday. And we'd love to host you for a meal at 12.30, uh, as, as uh, just kind of a chance to get together, interact with some, some folks who are uh, here year-round. And uh, if you were interested in that, just fill out the form, and you can come you know, join us as a group or sign up by yourself. And uh, you can also email as well, and you see the information there. You can drop it in one, the box in the back or hand it to one of the ushers before you leave today. Uh, there also are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, and we especially want to pray for... Uh, Warren Woolsey and his family at the death of his sister yesterday and we'll pray for, for this family as well as others and other concerns also We're we'll going to ask the ushers to come and uh, assist us in uh, the giving of our tithes and offerings
0: Shit. She-
2: Scripture reading this morning is from Luke 22, verses 31 through 46. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, to strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Um.
0: to
1: understand you as we sung your praises. Help us to hear your voice through your word. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not sure if you have this idea in your mind that I do. But something in me wants to believe that if you're a follower of Jesus, life ought to be easier than if you're not a follower of Jesus. So something in my head wants to believe that it's right and it's appropriate, that if you make the choice to to give your life to Christ, that one of the rewards you get back is that life is just a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, a little bit more blessed than if you're not a follower of Christ. It's in my mind. Maybe it's in yours. But the reality is that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, it doesn't seem to be... It seems to be the exact opposite. It seems to me that most of the time... For the people who follow Christ, there is more pressure. There's, there's more coming at us. There's, there's more that we have to face. It reminded me, as I was thinking about that, of the story told of St. Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spanish mystic, deeply spiritual woman who one day was on a journey to to share Christ with some others, and she came to this stream that she needed to cross, and it was swollen, and, and she waded in and she was almost knocked over and 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 taken downstream a number of times, and finally she drug herself across and, and made it to the other side. And that night as she was sleeping, she had a vision that she had a conversation with God. And she said to him, Lord. I don't understand why when I'm out doing your work, when I'm out sacrificing myself and my time and energy for others, why would you make me have to go through such a difficult experience like trying to cross that stream? Why why would you do that to me? Why would you make it so hard and difficult? Why would you allow that? And she heard God saying to her, Teresa, that's how I treat all my friends. And she said, well, Lord, it's no wonder you have so few of them. You know, and there is something of that 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 I think if you've spent time as a follower of Christ, you, you begin to understand that, and you begin to see that. And it may not be about you know difficult circumstances in life all the time, but it will, I think, always be a heightened sense of temptation. A heightened sense of, of pressure to go our own way instead of going Christ's way. This is what I see happening in the story in Luke's gospel that we read a few moments ago. Jesus is meeting in the upper room with his disciples. They, they've had this lengthy conversation. He has shared the meal with them. He's instituted what we call the, the Lord's Supper. And he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And they get to, into a discussion about Who among them would do such a thing? And that evolves into which of them, an argument about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus stops them at that point and says, you guys don't understand what's coming at you. He says in, excuse me, he says in verse 32, he addresses Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I don't know exactly what that means, but I have in my mind this image of a person going out and you know how you separate the wheat and the chaff. And and there is a sense I get that Satan's desire is to separate the disciples from Christ. To push them away from Christ. He says that's what he wants to do to you. And the opposition is going to be tough, much more difficult than you realize. And we'll talk more about this whole thing with the swords next week. But Jesus, at the very least, Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand that this is going to be a high-pressure kind of temptation that's coming at you. You guys are walking into some difficult, difficult things, and I don't think you realize it. It's going to be difficult. And I've come to the conclusion that, that the more... The more we give ourselves to Christ, the further we, we move along with Christ, temptation does not decrease, it increases. It may, it may come to us in different ways, but the temptation doesn't, doesn't uh, ebb, ebb down, it, it keeps moving forward, it keeps pressing us more and more all the time. That Satan wants to take the disciples because he knows they're going to be the leaders of the church. They're going to be the leaders of of God's kingdom on earth, and he wants to prevent that. And the more they give themselves to being those people that God wants them to be, the more Satan is going to push against them and fight against them. And he does the same thing with us. And we have in our minds that the further along we go with Christ, the less we should have to deal with temptation, but it's simply not true. One person I read said that, you know, as you as you grow in Christ, the temptation increases. Unless, of course, the only way the temptation uh, the only way temptation recedes is if you're going the same direction as the enemy. You know, if you're ever out running uh, against the in the wind, there's a windy day when you're running against the wind, man, you can feel it. When you're running with the wind, you don't really notice it. And when we're running in opposition to the evil one, we are going to feel the pressure against us. It's only when we're running the same direction that the evil one is that we don't feel it. I, think, I was thinking about who in the scripture has went through next to Jesus the most amount of temptation is probably Job. Does Job go through temptation because he's weak and and ungodly? No, God says to Satan, Look at Job. He's the most righteous person on earth. And yet, look what he faces such difficulty, such temptation to curse God and to turn away from him. I think as we move along in the faith, the temptation changes a bit, but it's always rooted in putting self before God. One of the difficulties we face as we move forward in Christ is that Satan has a tendency to use our strength against us so that our strength becomes our weakness. John Wesley used to, used to vastly back and forth about whether he, his followers ought to, to bear witness to the great things that God was doing in their lives. On the one hand, he wanted them to bear witness to that and he wanted people to be encouraged by what God was doing, but he was always a little bit hesitant Because he knew it was so easy to move from, look what God is doing in my life, to look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how spiritually strong I am. Look at how righteous and good I am. And that temptation as we move further along with Christ is continually being put at us. That temptation to pride, the temptation to think we are better than we really are. And sometimes it's our it's at the point of success that we are most vulnerable to temptation. I read about a Sunday school class that was talking about temptation, and the, the teacher asked the group, "You know, in what ways are you guys tempted?" And one of the one of the guys stood up and said, "Well, I'll tell you something." He said, "Temptation for me." Is when your boss comes to you as minded this week and says, Look, you are doing such a great job with, uh, as a salesman. You're, you are, you're just phenomenal what you're doing, that we're going to reward you by expanding your territory and giving you more responsibility. And he said, I said to my boss, But I don't want expanded territory. I don't want more responsibility. I'm already away from my family four nights a week as it is. I don't, I don't want to do that. And his boss said to him, but we're doing this for you, for your family. Your family's going to need more money. It's going to mean more money for you. Because the, the better you sell, the more you're going to make. And the more you make, the more you, better you can support your family. And I know your kids are young now, but as they get older, the costs are going to continue to increase. And you're going to need that money. So actually, we're doing you a favor. It's hard to look at your boss and say, I don't want that. But we all know that in our society, in our culture, success breeds success, which is good unless that success then begins to take away from things that are even more important. And the evil one is continually throwing that at us. And we are so vulnerable even when we are successful. When we're spiritually strong, the temptation is to believe that we are good. Not Christ is good in us. And we begin to think that, that what we've accomplished is because of our power instead of Christ's power. And we begin to think that, that we are pretty strong and we really don't need to rely on Christ as much anymore... ...because we've made such great progress, we're doing fine. And we even come to the the, the mindset of, of of thinking that while God's plans are wonderful and good... We've come so far in our spiritual journey that actually, if we just tweak God's plans a little bit, they'd be even better. And it all boils down to this mindset of I'm first instead of God being first. I mean, the ultimate temptation is to believe that something other than God can fulfill us, that something other than God is more important in our lives. And often, especially for people who have made a commitment to Christ, the temptation is not to something evil, it's to put the things that are good in the wrong place. And so, and so our, our relationships, however close and important they may be, become what we believe will bring fulfillment to us instead of God. Our work becomes what we think will bring fulfillment to us instead of God. Our accomplishments instead of God. And all these things that are good and are important become tools that the enemy subtly uses to cause us to say, I don't need God quite as much as I used to. We are never more susceptible to the power of temptation than, than when we overestimate our strength. Jesus says to, to, uh, to Peter, he says, Simon, you're, before the day is over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, Lord, I'd go to prison for you. I'd go to death for you. What are you talking about? I am so strong, you can't even describe it. And I can almost see Jesus shaking his head saying, Peter, you just don't get it, do you? But that overconfidence in his own strength led Peter to do exactly what Jesus said and to deny him. And our successes can lead us to overconfidence because it subtly shifts our focus from God at the center, God first, to Anything else. And you see it coming out, not always, in fact, usually not, in the big decisions, but in the small, everyday little things that we do. The decision here, a decision there, a harsh word towards someone. All of us are susceptible to the temptation of the evil one. He is continually pushing in upon us, trying to get us to put anything else before God. And that's why I think Jesus is so clear about telling us that honest, earnest prayer is the most effective defense against temptation that comes to us. Because in prayer, it's all about focusing our relationship on God. It's all about focusing our attention on God. This is what prayer is. Prayer is all about everything in our, in our focus is God. So we, when we offer praise, it's because we're acknowledging God is the ultimate in the universe. And when we offer thanksgiving to God, it's because we are acknowledging that anything we have is because God has given it to us. And when we intercede for ourselves or other people, it's because we, we believe that the only solution is from God. And when we confess our sins, it's because we believe that the only answer is God. Every dynamic of prayer keeps coming back to God is the focus. God is the center. It's all about Him. And when you read this passage, Jesus five times talks about prayer. Beginning in verse 39, it says, He went up as usual to the Mount of Olives, and His disciples followed Him. And reaching the place, He said to them, Pray that you'll not fall into temptation it's an interesting phrase. He says it again at the end. Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. It reminds me of the of the prayer in the Lord, the petition in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you want to say, Lord, why do we have to pray for God not to lead us into temptation? I don't think that's what it means. I, I think it means, as Dallas Willard says, that it's an, it's an honest acknowledgement that we are weak. And that in ourselves, there is, in essence, we're declaring a no confidence in our ability to handle the temptations that come to us. And if God doesn't help us, we're dead in the water. He says, pray that you won't fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone, throw beyond them, and he knelt down and he prayed. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, and they were asleep. And he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. It's clear that Jesus believes that honest, earnest prayer is the most effective defense against temptation. And when we read this passage, and we read on in through the end of the crucifixion, and we read into the rest of the, of the New Testament, it's clear that the battle for the cross is not won when Jesus is on the cross. The battle of the cross is won when Jesus is kneeling in prayer. When he gets up from prayer, it's done. We tend to think that that the battle is won in the events that we encounter. Jesus says, no, the events are just gonna work out how you've invested yourself in prayer. What you've given yourself to in prayer, that's where the battle is won or lost. And the disciples have a hard time seeing that. I think that's why they fall asleep I mean sleep is important for us our bodies are created for sleep we need sleep it's important for us to remain healthy and to get sleep but we also have to realize just as we do with everything else in life of there are times to sleep and there are times to pray Disciples wrestle with that understanding. You go back to Luke chapter 8, the disciples and Jesus are out in a boat and a storm comes up and just about swamps the boat and and tosses them into the sea. And it's interesting the two dynamics of the picture of the boat and the garden. In the boat, the disciples are panicked and Jesus is asleep. And in the garden, the disciples sleep and Jesus prays. Somehow Jesus understands the difference between sleeping and praying and and the necessity of that. For Jesus, everything keeps coming back to prayer. It's because Jesus takes prayer so seriously. And I'm not sure we do. We sort of dabble in prayer, but I'm not sure it's really the focus of our relationship with God. But if prayer is what, is what connects us with God, if prayer is, is through prayer how we hear God and we pour out our hearts to God and God speaks to us and he gets into us and he changes us, then prayer is a much more serious element of our lives than I think most of us consider it to be. For most of us, prayer is sort of one of the things that we do. For Jesus, prayer is the thing that he does. Everything about Jesus' life, it comes, keeps coming back to prayer. When he's perplexed, he prays. When he's tempted, he prays. When he goes through difficult times, he prays. When he's choosing his disciples, he prays. When he's facing a circumstance, he doesn't know exactly how to proceed, he prays. Moment by moment, his life is continually about prayer. It's because he takes prayer so seriously. It's because Jesus takes temptation seriously. He takes sin seriously. He understands the seriousness of the consequences of sin for us and for others. And he knows that the only solution is prayer. And so prayer becomes the central focus of his life, relationship with the Father. I'm not sure we really get that. We're probably a lot like the story I heard of the guy who was who got irritated one day and and swore in front of his pastor he got kind of embarrassed about that and there was this awkward silence and finally he said to the pastor you know what I swear a little you pray a little neither one of us really means that much by either one of them and I think that's probably true of us I mean if anybody said are you against prayer no very few people are going to raise their hands to that But are we really committed to the kind of prayer life like Jesus is? I think for Jesus, prayer, he understands that prayer is the heart language of the kingdom. It's the language that the people of God speak, it's the default language of people who follow Christ. And if we're a part of the kingdom of God, then prayer becomes our heart language my parents went to the philippines back back in the in the 80s as missionaries they were debating about whether they needed to learn tagalog or not they were going to manila they were going to be working with a upper class of people they all spoke english english is the official language of the philippines and so they they were batting around whether they needed to do that you know they were in their mid 40s and you know, learning a new language is not easy at that time and they got there and weren't sure what to do but after a month or so of, of being with people and getting to know people they decided they needed to learn Tagalog because that was the heart language of the people when people were, were excited about something Tagalog came out when they were distressed Tagalog came out when they really wanted to, to pour out something from their hearts Tagalog is what came out and they realized that they were really going to understand the heart of the Filipino people. They needed to at least have a working knowledge of Tagalog. And if you and I are going to be people of the kingdom of God, we need to see prayer as our default heart language. It's what comes out of us. It's, what's, it's a focal point for our very existence. That's why we've been trying to to spend a lot of time over the last few years as a congregation focusing our attention on prayer. We have these prayer vigils and prayer events not as the, the only time to pray but as sort of a jump start, a kick start for us to have some intensive times of praying together so that that then creates habits for us to go and pray. And it becomes a part of our lives. Because prayer it's the means of of becoming the people of God that we were created to be. To face the difficulties and the temptations that come to us, the answer is prayer. When prayer becomes our heart language, it naturally leads in to just a new awareness of what's going on around us. If you've ever read through the gospel, if you read through the gospels sometime, let me encourage you to read through the gospels just looking for how Jesus is so aware of his circumstances. He is so sensitive to what people are thinking and feeling and experiencing all around him. He just gets continually in tune with what's going on and he's in tune with the spiritual elements of things. And you know, he understands that Satan's at work and he can see that and he's able to, to perceive that in ways that no one else can. That's what prayer does for us. So that relationship with the Father does, it opens our eyes to the realities of what's happening. And I think that's why Jesus equates prayer and watching. In in the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus says to the disciples, be careful, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen. And you may be able to stand before the son of man, watch and pray. And the other gospel writers, when they're in the garden, they, they describe Jesus warning to the disciples to watch and pray. And these two things go hand in hand because you can't see, you're not going to be able to watch, you're not even going to want to watch unless you've begun to develop a, a heart attitude of prayer. And this idea of watching, in my mind, I have in, in, my, in my mind one of the old western forts, some type of fortress or castle with, with a high wall around it and you had a sentry. That would stand guard and the sentries would would rotate shifts, but they would stand guard watching. What's interesting is that their watching didn't then, when they saw an enemy coming, they didn't strike everyone into panic. But the watching just simply said, okay, they're coming now. And everyone knew what they were to do and they got ready for the battle that was to come. And watching for us isn't a sense of on edge, sort of panicked, I wonder when the enemy's going to come. But we watch with a spirit of, of peace, like Jesus sleeping in the boat. Because we're connected to God and we know that the power and the strength to overcome the evil one is not in us, it's in Him. We're just aware and looking and observing and alert to these subtle ways in which the evil one comes against us. And as prayer becomes our heart language, it, it sort of becomes second nature to us. But it takes time and it takes practice and it, it takes a commitment to it. When I was in high school, my first car was a 1966 Chevy Impala that was a hand-me-down from my sister, When she went to college and she got it from my uncle for, I don't know, she probably gave him a couple hundred dollars. Tells you what kind of shape the car was in when she got it, much less when I got it. You know, there was a kind of vehicle that, uh, this big boat thing that, you know, probably got about three miles to the gallon, which, you know, when you're paying 30 cents to a gallon, it's not so bad. But I remember when, when when I was in high school, the gas price went to 50 cents a gallon, and I thought, this is nuts. You know, now we're, what, $4 a gallon? That tells you how old I am, I guess. But, but you know, we, this car was so unreliable. You never knew if it was going to start. And when it did start, you'd be driving along, and you're never quite sure. It was, it, had a, it was an automatic transmission, but you're never quite sure if it was going to shift into the next gear or not. So you'd be going along, you know, in first gear, going 20 miles an hour, and you were trying to get it up to 40, but it just wouldn't quite get there. And, it would, you know, that humming sound, and then it would shift in. And finally, it came to the point of realizing, I, I need a new car. had a job. I'd saved up some money. So my dad and I were scanning the papers for a used vehicle. And eventually we, and we found one that we looked at and it was great. It was, um, it was a car that I thought this, this would be a great car. The only drawback to it was that it had a manual transmission and I wasn't sure what to do. I, um, I wasn't sure if if I could drive a manual transmission. I'd never driven a manual transmission before. You know, deal with the clutch and gas and all this stuff, you know. But I liked everything else about the vehicle. My dad said to me, I still remember this conversation. He said to me, if you like everything else about the car, it's a good price. And the only thing is this manual transmission. Then you ought to buy it because you'll learn to do that. And eventually it'll become second nature to you. I wasn't sure I believed him or not. But I did find an old picture in my album of... ...of me driving the car... ...and um, this, is, this is me on one of the racetracks. <laughs> well, that's not exactly it. That is does look like the car... ...but I don't know that was me behind the wheel. This is actually more the, of the vehicle that I got... ...this red Chevy Vega. Not quite as souped up. But I, I can still remember thinking to myself... ...I made a big mistake. Because I, I can remember so many mornings... ...on my way to school... When you, The last turn before you got to my high school, there was a, a turn lane light. And everybody who came from that direction got into the turn lane. And when the light turned green, the arrow, you had to make a U-turn to get back to the school. And you'd be lined up. And, of course, you know, it, the school starts at 8 and it's like 7.58 while you're sitting there or maybe even 8.02. And you're sitting there in line. And all these... I look in the rearview mirror and all my friends are lined up behind me in their cars. And the light turns green. I pop the clutch... And it dies. And they're honking their horns at me, you know. And, and all day they're giving me grief. And the next morning, you're waiting in line, light turns green, I pop the clutch, and it dies. Over and over and over again. And you know, when you see the other lights turn yellow, I can just feel the panic begin to rise up in me. Because I know the same thing's going to happen. And I'm thinking, why did I buy this car? And then I remember the day... I don't know why I thought of it one day, but all of a sudden it hit me one day. The light turned green. I took off and I thought to myself, it is second nature now. I don't even think about it anymore. I don't have to think to myself, okay, how much clutch, how much gas? I just did it. I didn't have to think anymore about, okay, now I have to downshift to slow down for this, for this light. I just did it. I didn't have to think about, okay, is it wound out enough to shift to the next year? I just did it. And I realize that my dad's words are ringing in my ears. second nature. And there's something of that in, in our commitment to pray, that we, we pray and we give ourselves to prayer and we keep doing it and I, we keep failing and we keep doing it. We keep failing. And eventually, it's so important to us and we take it so seriously that Prayer becomes the most natural response in the world. So that when we're faced with difficulties, we pray. And when life is simple, we pray. And when stuff is going the way we want it to, we pray. And when it's not, we pray. Because it's become for us our heart language. And when temptation comes, we have a power that we hadn't realized we could ever have because we become people who pray. But here's the thing that we always have to keep in mind. No matter how wonderful we become at praying, no matter how, no matter how important it, it is to us, no matter how seriously we take it, no matter how, how much of, of our heart language it becomes, there are times when temptation comes at us and we fail because we're human beings. It's in those moments that we have to remember that in our failure, there is the cross. And in the cross is always grace. The cross is all about grace because Jesus is all about grace. And none of us are perfect we are all going to fail. There are always going to be times when we're going to come up against temptation and we're going to turn away from God instead of toward God. And in those moments, the evil one is going to say to us, You are such a hypocrite. You talk all this stuff about God. Look at you. Look at that decision you just made. Look at what you just said to that person. Look at, look at, the, at, at what you're doing. Look at, look at how this stuff has fallen apart. And he tells us, you might as well just give up. Why do you even mess with this? Just forget about it. You're pathetic. And he keeps bombarding us with those messages. I guarantee you, those are the messages he sent to Peter. Those are the messages he sent to Judas. For some reason, Judas couldn't hear anything but that. But Peter could see grace. Jesus knew it was going to happen. In fact, when you look at verse 32, Jesus says, "Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers." There's a little little uh, between-the-line sentence left out that basically he says, "Peter, I know you're going to blow it." I don't care what you say to me. You're going to go down in flames. But when you do, just come on back. And you and I are going to blow it. You and I are going, to, are going to, no matter our best intentions, we're just not perfect. Pride's going to get in the way. Selfishness is going to get in the way. Self-centeredness is going to cause us to make a decision that we wish we hadn't made. But in those moments, and when the enemy is bombarding us with all of these words of despair and we're tempted to just give up look to the cross because in the cross is grace always grace and we are much more apt to see the grace of God and to turn to the cross and to experience that grace when we have built a relationship with the Father through prayer Prayer isn't just to keep us from temptation and to overcome temptation. Prayer is also our lifeline when we fail in the face of temptation. To turn us to Christ and the grace and the forgiveness of the cross. Every one of us, every one of us who who are followers of Christ, must hear the call, take up your cross and follow me. There's no way any of us can do that. No way. Until prayer becomes our heart language. Until we begin to see prayer as the way to build our relationship and to trust in our relationship with the Father. It is, it is the way of Christ. And my question for us is: Is it our way? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us so that prayer is more than just crisis management, but it's life development. It's life change. It's everything about our lives. And we ask that you will help us to see that ever more clearly. Amen. As we prepare to spend some time together in prayer, as is our practice every week, if you'd like to use the altar, I invite you to join me. You might want to come for just a burden in your own life. You might want to come as an expression of your desire to make prayer more central to your life. You might want to come as an act of prayer for someone else. But if you'd like to come and use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Father, we so often fall into the trap of believing that we're strong in ourselves. Forgive us. We so easily succumb to believing that we need you, just not that much. Forgive us. We overestimate our strength. Forgive us. We believe the words of despair from the evil one. Forgive us. We go our own way. Forgive us. Father, this morning, we pray that you will help us to hear your words of welcome your desire for intimacy with us and that we would understand in a new way how vital prayer is, communing with you, listening to you, speaking to you, pouring out our heart to you to becoming the people you want us to be. Father, I pray that you will help each of us, all of us, to see the seriousness of the temptation that the evil one brings against us. Help us to see in a new way the consequences of our sin in our lives and in for others. And set us free through your Spirit. Father, as we commit ourselves to you and to relationship with you, Open our eyes to your desire for intimacy with us. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for others. We pray that you would bring comfort to all who are grieving and healing to all who are in pain. We pray that your healing touch would be upon every person who is struggling with the physical, mental, emotional issues that come to us as humans. We pray that you would heal relationships that are broken. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and and help us to trust you about the future for our lives. Father, we pray for this world. Even this week, we've seen the chaos and devastation that the evil one desires to bring about in this world. There's so many who are willing to to buy into his desire. We pray that through your grace, you will bring peace. And that through your people, Christ will be exalted and new life will come to this world that you love. Father, thank you for your grace in us. Thank you for your desires for us. I pray that you would fill our hearts with a new passion and yearning for prayer to be our heart language. We ask this, Father, through the grace of Christ, who taught us the model for prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come
0: With us, Jesus, I'm afraid. I'm so very weak. My faithfulness fails, my courage will flee. But you are my rock, my shelter.